The story we'll be entering into this morning is the story of Stephen the deacon. And our passage for this morning begins in the middle of Stephen's story. And the assumption is that you already know who Stephen the deacon is. So let me catch you up by way of introduction if you do not already know this man. Stephen was, well, a deacon. And a deacon is a man or woman who is ordained or set aside to serve the church, particularly the physical needs of the church. Stephen was one of the first ever deacons. Lots of churches have deacons now, but Stephen was the original. He and a handful of others were chosen to solve a particular problem. You see, in its earliest days, the church was growing at such a fast rate, 5,000 on Monday, 3,000 on Wednesday, that the leaders found themselves overwhelmed. They couldn't prepare a sermon every Sunday and meet all the physical needs of the church. So naturally, people fell into the cracks and were overlooked. And one such neglected segment of the population were the Greek widows in the church. Somehow everyone else received their daily portion of food, but they were consistently getting missed, and they lodged a formal complaint with the leaders of the church. This was a problem that needed fixing, and deacons were the agreed-upon solution. Stephen was a no-brainer for this role. Our author, Luke, describes him in various places throughout the story as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, in verse 5, full of grace and power and performing great wonders and signs among the people, in verse 8, speaking with such wisdom and spirit that he could not be refuted, in verse 10, and his face was even said to be like the face of an angel, in verse 15. He was truly a special person, and the apostles recognized that by making him a deacon of the church. But at the beginning of our passage this morning, we see that while Stephen was full of faith and grace and power and doing really wonderful work in the church, he was also strongly opposed. Our passage begins with Stephen the deacon's arrest. His only crime, if you can call it that, was that he was a Christian and explicitly doing his work in the name of Jesus. If you look at just the work he was doing alone, there's no reason to object to any of it. He's taking care of the vulnerable in society, the widows who had no other way of putting food on their table. Any person could, should be able to recognize that relief for the poor is a win for all of society. This was work that should have been celebrated, and yet it got Stephen locked up. Because as a Christian, Stephen could not separate his love for the marginalized from Jesus. Stephen preached the gospel in not just deed, but also in word. And as a result, he faced opposition from the powerful majority that believed differently than him. If he had just silently fed the widows, there would have been no opposition. But Stephen insisted on preaching the gospel in deed and word. You know, none of the opposition that we have seen the early church experience in the book of Acts was because they were healing people or meeting the physical needs of people. It's always because they were doing these things in the name of Jesus. They insisted on both deed and word, and it's the word part that really ruffled feathers. That's what the violent opposition boiled down to, a disagreement in belief about Jesus. Stephen was silenced because he was out of step with the majority opinion about Jesus at the time. Jesus was a threat to not only the Romans by claiming to be the king of the world, but also the Jews by breaking the mold they had created for the Messiah. Stephen would have been out of step with our culture, too. And anyone who witnesses to Jesus as Stephen did in deed and word will find themselves similarly opposed. 
silently care for the elderly or the refugees or the poor and our culture will celebrate you. Say it doesn't matter whether you believe in Allah or Buddha or Jesus Christ so long as you treat people with dignity and our culture will never object but neither will you be a witness to Jesus. The very responsibility Jesus gave the church in the early chapters of Acts. You are my witnesses, he said. But witnessing to Jesus in word and deed creates conflict in a world that chafes against any claim to absolute truth. Do good work explicitly in the name of Jesus and you'll ruffle feathers. Quote Jesus' own words that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life as your motivation. You'll find yourself as strongly opposed as Stephen. You see, every world religion encourages good works from its adherents, but only in Christianity is good work a joyful response. And only a joyful response is truly selfless. Confident of their standing with God on account of Jesus, the Christian can afford to forget about themselves and, like Jesus, give themselves entirely to the person that they are serving. There's nothing to earn, right? No one to impress. It's the difference between a parent who meets her child's every need and then sends the child on an errand and the parent who says to his child, if you do this, I will give you a piece of candy. The first child completes the errand out of respect and love of the parent, but the second child completes the errand out of love for both parent and candy. Both do good, but only one is truly selfless. Every religion other than Christianity demands good works as a way of earning favor, either to increase one's standing with God or to move closer to some state of perfection. But the good work of the Christian is a direct response to grace alone, the grace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus alone reconciles people back to God while they are still sinners. That's why the Christian insists on preaching the name of Jesus even as she does good work. That's why the Christian refuses to let Jesus share the stage with Muhammad or Buddha because Jesus alone accomplished the redemption of humanity which provides the motivation for a joyful response of care and concern for the world. The Christian insists on Jesus and Jesus alone. The early church insisted on Jesus and Jesus alone. And for this insistence, Stephen got into hot water. But out of his obstinacy also grew a comfort that sustained him through death. As Stephen lay dying in verse 59, rocks being piled on top of his exhausted, weak body, he somehow mustered the strength to speak. And through his bloodied mouth, he whispered, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. An echo of Jesus' last words on the cross in the Gospel of Luke, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen died for his obstinate resolution to preach Jesus. And yet as he was dying, he reminded himself of Jesus' death. There's comfort for the believer who, when suffering, considers the death of Jesus. Because Jesus not only provides the conditions for truly selfless service to the world, but he also alone has the power to bring to life what is dead. He defeated death in the resurrection. And Jesus alone has the power to give life to people, to communities. Jesus willingly died for us and now makes us willing to die for him so that we might know the life that Jesus provides. Jesus has redeemed the life of the Christian so that body and soul belong to him. The world may kill the body, but our spirits, our souls belong to God. And he will raise up our bodies and one day you reunite our bodies and souls once more just as Jesus experienced in the resurrection. We'll have incorruptible, unbroken bodies and may now greet death with the boldness and confidence of Stephen. 
having obstinately insisted on Jesus and Jesus alone, we, commit, we may commit our spirits to God as we die and know that he will raise us up one day to life eternal, embodied life eternal. Such was the comfort and hope of Stephen at his death. But before his death, he first had to experience a trial. Stephen was brought before a court that was already hotter than a hornet. The court that Stephen was brought before was the same court that was forced to release Peter and John against their wishes. It was the same court that had locked up the twelve apostles, but then found them teaching in the temple after having escaped from prison. It was the same court that had Jesus crucified, and yet there were unavoidable hints all around them suggesting that Jesus had escaped the grip of death even. This court was being thwarted left and right, and they for sure were not going to whiff on Stephen. So they fabricated testimony against him in verses 13 and 14. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They accused Stephen of being a threat to the temple, and all of it was lies, of course, but lies of such magnitude that they demanded a response. The temple was beloved by the Jewish people, and speaking about the destruction of it would be like an American speaking against the New World Trade Center tower constructed in New York City. It struck an emotional core deep within them. But Stephen was given a chance to offer an explanation in verse 1 of chapter 7. In his lengthy speech about the history of Israel, he accomplishes two things. The first was a challenge. We didn't read the whole, the whole speech, but... He challenges the idolatry of the temple and the central position that that building had come to hold in the faith of the Jews. He did what every Christian is called to do, which is to name the idolatry in the hearts of those who call themselves believers. We did not read the entirety of his speech, but he systematically points out to the court that none of the patriarchs had the temple. Abraham certainly didn't, living in tents with Isaac his son and Sarah his wife. Neither did Jacob, Abraham's chosen grandson. The twelve sons of Jacob moved to Egypt and lived there under the benevolent care of the youngest son, Joseph. They certainly didn't have the temple. Neither did Moses. In fact, Moses didn't even enter the promised land, but died on a hill overlooking it. Not even David, the great king of Israel, had the temple. And it wasn't until Solomon that the temple was built. And even then, the prophet Isaiah warned against the belief that this place was where God actually lived. In verses 49 through 50, Stephen quoted from the prophet Isaiah, reminding them that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. A building could never hold the God who created all things. And yet the priests and Jewish leaders acted like there was no faith apart from the temple. And Stephen is telling them that that just simply isn't the case. Consider your own history and the history of the patriarchs. None of them had the temple, so obviously it isn't necessary. Should it disappear, which it did not too long after Stephen's death, faith will still survive. What God desires is not sacrifice in a temple, but a broken and contrite heart. The temple was never necessary for faith, so who cares if Stephen should speak against the temple? What of it? And in this way, Stephen challenged the idolatry of the priests and Jewish leaders. But then he went one step further than a challenge, and he accused them of being God's enemies. Throughout his history of Israel, Stephen demonstrated how there have always been people who have opposed God. 
In verse 9, he points out that the patriarchs, even the 11 sons of Jacob, opposed the 12th son, Joseph, the chosen one, and sold him into slavery. In Egypt, Stephen recalls in verse 19, the people of God were enslaved and treated bitterly by a new king, forced to kill their own babies through exposure so that their population didn't grow too large. Moses, in verse 27, was shown to have been misunderstood and opposed by his fellow countrymen while in Egypt. The Israelites opposed God by grumbling against him even after Moses brought them out of slavery. Stephen sufficiently demonstrated that someone has always opposed God and his church. But then in verse 51 to 53, he begins pointing fingers. You are the ones who oppose God. You are not the oppressed, but the oppressors. You are the children of those who oppose God. You are the enemies of God. And needless to say, things escalated pretty quickly from there after Stephen accused his accusers. The court threw out any remaining semblance of order, and the text tells us that, grinding their teeth in anger, they dragged him out of the city and killed him by throwing large stones on his head and body. As he was being violently killed, though, Stephen said one of the most unexpected things. In a moment when a rock hit him so hard that he fell to his knees, there on his knees, Stephen echoed Jesus' prayer from the cross, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's eerily similar to Jesus' plea that the Father should forgive his murderers for they know not what they do. Stephen died as Jesus died, outside the city, the result of a phony testimony, yet praying for the idolatrous, antagonistic men who killed him. Where did he find the strength to forgive the very men who were presently murdering him, men who were enemies of God? He found strength for such extreme forgiveness in the profound acceptance of the fact that he too was once an enemy of God. Just as we all were enemies of God at one time, And perhaps some of us still are, and yet Jesus has extended forgiveness to his enemies. Stephen understood that Jesus was praying for him on the cross. He was praying for us too. Father, forgive them. It was for our sins that he died, and yet he died forgiving us our sins. Stephen had become like Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit somewhere deep within his soul. It's the same work that the Spirit is now doing in each and every one of you who love Jesus and trust Him. The Spirit is making you obstinate in the truth and then comforting you with that same truth. And the Spirit is working forgiveness into your hearts as you realize more and more just how much you have been forgiven. Most people have one without the other, truth without grace or grace without truth. Some people brutally insist on truth and condemn others as a way to protect truth. Others embrace grace at the expense of truth and therefore endorse all things. But Jesus shows us that you don't have to sacrifice the one to have the other. Jesus balanced the two perfectly, and through his Spirit, now living in his people, he is making us like himself. He did it for Stephen. May he do it for you as well. May you, like Stephen, find yourselves full of truth and grace on the day you die. And may your witness to the truth and grace of Jesus have the same effect on the world that Stephen's had on the world in which he lived. Stephen's story ends with his death. 
But Luke makes it a point to mention that Stephen's murderers were laying their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was the one responsible for Stephen's death, and yet the manner in which Stephen died unsettled Saul. Saul was a man who had neither truth nor grace, and when he came into contact with someone who did, with Stephen, it unsettled his soul and provided the kindling for true faith, awaiting a spark. In a couple weeks, we will see how Saul went from killing Christians to becoming a Christian himself. But the witness of Stephen at his death, balancing truth and grace, was the beginning of that journey for him. Jesus purchased our souls for himself by dying in truth and grace. May you mirror him in the world and bring rest to the weary souls in need of grace and deprived of truth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.